standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 51 of the Standard Issue podcast. I'm Hannah Dunleavy and the fact that you're hearing my voice first means that we're doing things a little bit differently this week. If you follow us on Twitter, you might have seen that Mickey and I spent the weekend in the beautiful city of Dublin where we attended the annual abortion rights march. So we took the opportunity to record the Bush Telegraph while we were there speaking to lots of brilliant women and more on that later. Also coming up in this week's podcast, Mickey speaks to the excellent Imriel Morgan about Black History Month and she'll explain to you a little bit more about what else we've got planned to celebrate that throughout October. In a big week for women's boxing, Jen talks to playwright Joy Wilkinson about why she was inspired to write The Sweet Science of Bruising about the sport. And as October the 4th is also National Poetry Day, we spoke to anthologist Anna Sampson about the joy of poetry and why women don't always get a fair crack of the whip when it comes to putting together anthologies. No Dunleavy does Disney this week, in case you were curious, but we haven't given up. I just needed a little bit of time off. But we will be back next week when, and I can tell you this in advance because I know because I've actually seen it, we will be doing Coco. In the meanwhile, here's the Bush Telegraph. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. As promised, this was recorded live in Dublin this weekend where we were at the annual abortion rights march. Now, I know you might be thinking, hang on, didn't they vote to repeal the 8th back in May? And the the correct answer is they did. All that did was remove the first barrier in making sure that women in Ireland could get access to free, safe, legal abortions. There is still a long way to go. Legislation is still being put together and people are still very keen to make sure that that means that everyone gets access to the reproductive care that they need. And that includes women of all ages, of all social groups, and importantly, in all areas, and it's particularly important in rural Ireland. We were lucky to bump into a lot of the women that we met originally when we were in Dublin in April, and it was great to see them again. And we also made some new friends on the march. So I'm going to hand you over now. My name is Angela Caraccio. I am on the board of directors for uh, the abortion rights campaign and I was uh, convener last year. My name is Quiva Doyle. I'm also on the board of directors and I was convener with Angela last year. <laughs> so, you know, May the 25th happened. Big result. Why are we marching again? Well, first of all, it's nice to have a little bit of a victory lap, but also there's still so much to be done besides the destigmatizing work that we'll probably have to do till the end of time. We still are waiting for legislation, and there are certain things that we definitely want in that legislation, and that's not a done deal, so we need to march here and demand it. And what has the reaction been? Yeah, it's the, it's the seventh March for Choice that we've had. So last year was obviously the biggest march we've had. We have had a few people kind of saying, you know, you repealed the 8th, so why are you marching? But actually, nothing has changed since we repealed the 8th. We're still waiting for legislation to come in. And we're still waiting for women to actually be able to access abortion here. So it's really important that we do march today and we have a strong showing as well. Can I ask, have you had any backlash since the 25th? From who? (laughs) People who were unhappy with the decision. I suppose the third that didn't vote. Yes. I don't think so, not really. I think, you know, people saw that there was such a big majority for choice that I think 
it's kind of embarrassing now to say that you're you're anti-choice. I think a little bit. So we haven't seen much of that. I do think they're they're regrouping a little yeah. bit. If you follow their media, you can kind of see they're they're still organizing and they're still putting their slant on everything. And the other thing too is there was a lot of funding from America, and that that funding still exists, and they still have that funding stream coming in. So you kind of never know what's going to happen. Now for Northern Ireland, right? Definitely. So we have Alliance for Choice marching with us today. They're going to be behind the ARC banner, and that is definitely the next the next big thing for the pro-choice movement on the island of Ireland is getting abortion access for our siblings in Northern Ireland. We've just bumped into Emma Campbell from Alliance for Choice. Hi, Emma. Hi. So the North is next. Yes, indeed. We'll be calling for uh, solidarity today because it's about time we weren't left behind anymore. And we're just so grateful to have always been welcomed in to the campaign in the South and, and to have been involved. And always amazing to see this many people on the streets as well. So, yeah. Where are you actually up to in Northern Ireland? Could you give us an update as to where things stand, please? Well, the CEDAW committee has ruled that Westminster are in breach of our human rights by not doing something about the abortion laws. We've had no devolved government for over 19 months, so we're not expecting them to do anything for us. So we're really pushing very hard at Westminster for them to repeal 58 and 59 of the Fences Against the Person Act. And we, we believe this can happen in the next year. And obviously there's just been that huge court case that was taken to the Supreme Court. Could you give us a tiny bit of a rundown on what was going on there, please? So the Supreme Court case was the Northern Ireland Human Rights Commission took a judicial review out against the Stormont Assembly to not allow for abortion was in breach of our human rights. We intervened. We had a, a young woman who had that exact situation where she was not allowed access to abortion and couldn't travel and there were a few other interveners in that case and even though the court ruled that the Human Rights Commission had no standing in the case to take it, very unusually the judges made a a ruling anyway and they ruled that Westminster need to act, that they are in breach of human rights, that um, they need to remove criminal sanctions from abortion. Obviously we're delighted with that. It's just another piece of evidence to put pressure on Westminster. There's also last Thursday there was an announcement that the Department for Women and Equalities in Westminster have launched an inquiry into abortion in Northern Ireland. The deadline for submissions is the 10th of December so we'll be rallying the troops in the north to try and make sure everybody puts in a submission and that real women's voices are heard. The problem is the only people representing us in Westminster are the DUP because Sinn Féin don't take their seats and the DUP are actively blocking us despite the fact that we know that over 60% of DUP voters support a change in the abortion law. Are you getting support from English MPs, Scottish MPs, Welsh MPs? So both the Scottish Assembly and the Welsh Assembly announced that they would also fund those travelling over for abortions to their jurisdictions. We've had a little bit of an issue with the Scottish National Party supporting us just because they're worried about issues of devolution. But the majority of the House, if there was a vote in Parliament tomorrow, the majority of the House would pass it. What can we do as part of the UK as well? What can we do to help get this sorted? I think a really important thing is to harass your MPs. A lot of them maybe aren't that educated on what the situation is in Northern Ireland. We need every single one of them to turn up on the day that a vote might happen, on the day that we're hoping that there'll be an amendment on the domestic abuse bill. And we need all of them to vote on our behalves and we need all of them to amplify our voices. Well, thank you so much for all the amazing work that you're doing. 
thank you very much for, for being here and interviewing us. <laughs> Hi, we're here with Paula Denon from Kerry for Choice. Hello, Paula. Thanks for joining us. No problem. We've mostly encountered people when we've been talking to them from Dublin, and it's nice to see some people from the rest of the country here. What's the feeling down in Kerry since the vote has gone through? Relief, particularly in Kerry, because we knew we were up against kind of like our politicians are quite conservative, so we knew we were up against a particularly difficult challenge. So we are relieved and happy that it passed as overwhelmingly as it did within Kerry itself. And why are you here today? For many reasons. I suppose the biggest one would be that although we have repealed the 8th, we still don't have legislation. Um, we do have a pr- proposal of what the legislation will look like that's due to go before the doll, I think, this week sometime. Our biggest thing, I suppose, as a rural group would be the 72-hour wait period. It places additional barriers in front of all people who need to access abortions. It places extra barriers in front of those in rural areas, particularly those who would be reliant on public transport and their GP may be two towns over. So have to do that twice in a week. Yeah. Um, so we are um, our biggest thing, and the reason why we're here today, I suppose, with the Care for Choice banner, is to to make sure that abortion is accessible to people in rural areas to the same extent that it is in the cities. It can't be a two-tier system. Hiya, my name is Carol, and I'm here in the March as an abortion rights campaign member, volunteer, and I'm also part of a group called Time Travelers for Choice. That's within the abortion rights campaign group as well. You are wearing what my mum would call a very snazzy outfit that does indeed look like it's from the past. Can you tell us a little bit more about Time Travellers for Choice? Yeah, sure. So basically what it it is is we dress up in vintage costume or historical costume and we're basically showing, we're trying to make a point that it's been so long since there's been progression in women's rights and equality and not, like, that, not that much has changed since people were wearing these clothes, really, when you think about it. As well as that, it's 100 years, as you know, since women in the UK and certain women in Ireland got the vote. Yeah. So that kind of ties in with it nicely as well, yeah. We're actually on the march now, and we've only bumped into bloody Sheena Carhill. Yeah, here I am again. I'm just find me in these places. Wherever there's activism, I'll be there. You've gone up in the world since we last spoke. Yeah, I'm president now, so I I was chair of Students for Choice and vice president uh, when you were chatting to me. Just before the referendum, and, you know, you never actually caught me after the referendum because I was so busy in the end. I assume so. Yeah. Busy slash drinking, maybe. I dr- yeah, I mean, drinking a lot of uh, Lucasade to try and keep me going more than anything else, <laughs> not going to lie. So why are you here? Right, so we're here um, because there's um, basically a big protest called the Abortion Rights Campaign March for Choice. It's been held every year for about for seven years now, basically to call on the government around reproductive rights in Ireland. And a lot of people were wondering, you know, okay, so you repeal the 8th, so why are you doing a March for Choice in 2018 here? And we're saying it's because we haven't got what we want yet. It's not free, safe and legal. Uh, the legislation hasn't been passed. And so until that happens, we're going to keep marching. What was the reaction after May the 25th? I was so tired. I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I couldn't remember my name for a long time. Um, you know what? It was relief. I think it was relief more than anything else. And Did you actually think? I mean, I know you had to believe it was going to go through. But did you secretly think it might not? Yeah. I mean, I, I think I lied to your, to your podcast when I was asked that question. You are a politician. Um, yeah, it's complete. I lied. Um, no, it's, it's, it's because you, you want to believe in people. You do. You honestly want to believe that they will see what the right thing to do is. But sometimes people let you down. And it turns out that the Irish people didn't let us down on this one. They actually turned around and said, you know, feck it, we, we can't go on with this anymore. And um, we understand that there's too many people hurting and we're going to vote to change it. 
And you had sort of as a double win for you because your local town also voted yes. Yeah, um, I'm from Longford. Uh, it's a little county in the Midlands in Ireland and would have been very tight to slash a no for marriage equality in 2015. We were dragged over the line with our constituency with Westmeath, which is a lot more of an urban area than Longford. Uh, and then, then I just didn't believe it. I was standing in the in the Longford Count Centre, you know, in the middle of nowhere. We couldn't get any kind of Wi-Fi access, never mind call out or, or anything like that. And the boxes were opened and it was primarily yes coming out of my local little village box and I couldn't believe it. And you're going to be speaking at the end of the march. What are you going to say? I'm going to say some things. Um, I, I, no, I'm going to talk about the fact that, like, you know, it, it's not over. That, um, you know, I'll recognise the fact that students in particular had a huge part to play in the fight for reproductive justice in Ireland, but that particularly when it comes to the fact that USI are, are an organisation that represents students all across the island, that, you know, our, our friends and our family in Northern Ireland certainly don't have access to anything near uh, what we will have, hopefully, after Appeal the 8th, and it's not good enough. We have just bumped into the amazing Mara Clark, founder of Abortion Support Network. As Hannah just said, we need to stop meeting like this. Well, I just keep coming to all the places where I can get as many pro-choice hugs as possible. How many have you had today so far? About 11 billion. Awesome. That is a great number. It's my favorite number, actually. (laughs) So why are you here today? Well, honestly, part of it is to come and see some of the people who worked so hard to make repeal happen from the north and from the south and from further afield. It's almost like a sense of closure, even though there's a long way to go. And even seeing that there's, you know, there's not as many people here uh, this year as there was last year or the year before because the urgency isn't, isn't quite there. But I think this is sort of a real celebration of all the work that was done. And there's still work to be done. I saw a tweet from Abortion Support Network the other day that over half of the women that are still travelling, the provision that's going to come in wouldn't have covered them. Well, it's over half the women who we're hearing from. So we only hear from those who are poor and don't have the kind of support network that they need to come over, to raise the funds to come over. So a lot of the people that we hear from are over 12 weeks gone or they have other mitigating factors and we don't know whether or not those will be covered by the legislation. For instance, will the provision include refugees Will it include Irish travellers? Will it include migrants, asylum seekers? And it definitely won't include people over 12 weeks pregnant. And a lot of women, particularly those in an escaping abusive relationships, older women who think it's the menopause, young girls who are in denial, the legislation isn't going to cover them. So we're still going to be here for them. And also, there's a really sketchy definition so far of what provision from January actually means. Doctors for Choice would have a lot to say about that. I met with a couple of them this morning. I think there will be some provision in January, but that will probably be provision with tablets up to nine weeks. And it's going to have to be a pretty um, attractive offering for somebody to want to go to the doctor, wait 72 hours, go to the doctor again, instead of ordering safe but illegal tablets from the Internet. So I'm, we're just waiting and seeing. That's what abortion funds do. We wait and see. And we're here to help everybody who falls through the cracks of provision. And you said you're expanding. A girl's got a dream. It's very early days, but we are looking into expanding to other countries in Europe where abortion is against the law, as well as looking into helping those in countries that only has first trimester provision travel to England and Holland, where provision goes to 22 and 24 weeks. 
A couple of months ago, I saw Mairead Emright tweeting that they were still seizing drugs at the border. Do you know anything about that? Yeah, so there's always been seizures um, in the north and the south, but they, they can't get them all, can they? And also the seizures, there's different organizations sending in tablets. Uh, we tend to deal with uh, Women Help Women and Women on Web, who are the two most reputable providers. A lot of the tablets that they're seizing are actually misoprostol only, which is not a doctor. One of the two medications, and it's it's not as effective on its own. But all I'm saying is that, tab- you know, while, yes, the seizures have gone up and the seizures increase any time there is a PR stunt about tablets, but I, I would also say uh, with fairly with fair confidence that lots of tablets are still getting in. But you'd hate to be the one not knowing. As ever, what can we do to help? Uh, we'll take your money. Uh-huh. You know, Abortion Support Network is very, very proud that since 2009, almost all of our money has come from private individuals, including former clients. Everybody, you know, people who give us anything from a euro to a hundred pound a month. And I know I just switched currencies there. We take all currencies. But also, if you have friends in Ireland, like if they try and mess about with this legislation, support them. Also, Alliance for Choice in Northern Ireland still has a long road ahead of them. And just in general, get involved with all the things that impact people's decision about whether or not they can have a child or more children. You know, it's not just about abortion. It's about the gender pay gap. It's about affordable child care. You know, as my long-suffering daughter will tell you, not everybody can drag their kid with them to abortion marches and, and other sorts of things so uh, I don't know I guess I guess everybody just needs to do something I think the world the way the world is right now we all need to be doing something well you have equal pay but you know they're not equal are they sexism of the week it's that time of the week where we delve deep into the twitter sphere and finally concede that every little may in fact not help after all Tesco found themselves the target of the ire of at least four ham-faced halfwits last week who were unimpressed by the supermarket giant's pro-women fashion items. In response to a £7 t-shirt from the supermarket's F&F range, that's right, some morons lost their shit. The, uh, the t-shirt in question brandished the slogan, The Future is Female, but let's neatly gloss over the second, which read, Fearless and Feminine? which I can only read in the manner of a Robert Kilroy silk loop, and I think for obvious reasons. Anyway, one such outraged individual took to Twitter to rant, How can you justify selling sexist clothing in your shops? If you were selling t-shirts with the future is male, there'd be outrage. Yeah, Jacob Smart123, maybe. Or just bleak acceptance of the quite probable reality. Meanwhile, Mike Wiseman bemoaned Tesco's misandry, adding... Won't be supporting Tesco with my shopping, that's for sure. (laughs) My hard-earned cash, of which you earn on average 9.8% more for doing the same job as your female colleagues, FYI, Mike, will be spent with their competitors who value male shoppers. Well, Mike, you may earn more than us, but according to research conducted in 2013, women are responsible for 93% of all grocery purchases. So I really can't think of just one F I have for you. Not a sexy one, by the way. Elsewhere, Oscar Bravo 666 decreed, If this is true, then we're all fucked.
shocked, supported by not one, but two exclamation marks. In a week where women's rights were given yet another shafting by way of the US Supreme Court voting to approve the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh to the top court, let's just hope the future is an arsewipe. Hello, Mickey here. Monday, which was the 1st of October, not only prompted cries of, how the fuck is it October already? But also marked the beginning of Black History Month. Originating in the US, where it's celebrated in February, Black History Month was introduced to the UK in 1986 by Linda Bellos, then leader of Lambeth Council. Are you wondering, one, why just a month? And two, what happens in it? Well, one, yep, good point. And two, it's used as a time to raise awareness of what's happening for black Brits now and to reflect and celebrate the diverse histories and achievements of people of African and Caribbean descent, and also to big up their enormous contributions to the social, political, economic and cultural development of the UK. Black History Month not only highlights the contribution of Britain's high-profile figures in the arts and politics, but also the lives of people like Stephen Lawrence, whose murder triggered nationwide soul-searching about institutional racism. This year, the Windrush scandal has exposed the need to keep black history in sharp focus and served as a reminder that it is vital to hear black history spoken about positively. Because, you know, three, it's relevant to all of us. It's our shared history and we all need to know about it. For the four Sundays of Black History Month, we're going to be using the chops to chat to brilliant black women doing incredible things for the black community and for anyone who wants to get involved. Jen catches up with Elizabeth U.V. Beneni and Yomi Adagoki, the authors of Black Girl Bible Slay in Your Lane. Hannah chats with Claire Hewkin about her book for kids, What is Race? Who are racist? Why does skin colour matter? And other big questions. And I have a date with mashes up of social activism, music, dance and burlesque, Hot Brown Honey. This Sunday, I'm chatting to Emuel Morgan, host of Wannabe Podcast, co-founder of the Shout Out Network and all-round top bird. We talked stuff to do, films to watch, how Windrush affected her family and much more. You can hear all of that on Sunday, but for now, here's a wee taster. I kicked off by asking Imreal why Black History Month is so important. I think it's important simply because we don't get it throughout the years. So I remember quite distinctly in school that a lot of the history centred around like British history, colonialism and some of the imperialism. And I think we have been a part of the fabric of British society long before even slavery to some extent. And I think it's important that we have some time to appreciate that and acknowledge that. It's important for Black British children to know that their history extends just beyond what we see in the UK. So I think it's important that we just commemorate that, not just for young Black children, but also for the representation across the board, across the whole population, that we actually did exist. And I think when people have a better understanding of everyone's history and cultural backgrounds, it just leads to a more tolerant society overall. And I think we need a little bit of that, especially now. Absolutely. I mean, how did it feel for you in those history lessons? I think for me, it just felt nice to be acknowledged and represented in some way, even if it is just once a year. For me, Black history has been like integral to my life, which I know isn't always the case for some families and some children. But my parents are both really proactive in terms of letting us know about our Caribbean history in particular, um, the history of the slave trade. My dad is really, really, really extra on making sure that we know everything about black history that predates slavery. So I've always had like a really good firm grasp on what, where I came from um, and why it's important to know that. 
So in terms of like the UK education system, acknowledging it, or like the wider society acknowledging that here's a month that we are going to acknowledge like people in black history and amazing leaders across the board. I felt like that was, it was important. It was, it felt significant. It felt like, oh, finally we have like this month that is kind of just for us. And even though there's usually always backlash against it, it just felt like that's irrelevant. We need this time to actually sit down and actually understand like, Black people did things prior to Windrush, prior to slavery. We have like a very rich cultural history and actually some of that exists in the UK. And I think some people often forget that. And it's nice to have that time to remember that. The relevance of fairly recent history has been in the news all of this year, really, with the Windrush scandal, Mm -hmm. which is still rumbling on. People think it's solved. It's still rumbling on. Yeah, the Windrush thing, yeah, it really hit hit me hard because I think for the longest time I knew it was happening for months. You kind of just see it in the news and I I really do make a point of just not getting involved in the news. Um, (laughs) I'm really deliberate, actually, in not reading anything. And so it was only... I knew my dad had had um, a few issues with his citizenship because when he came to this country, he was, I guess, given a piece of paper as a British national. So it it was before... Jamaican independence so it was a British colony so you're a British citizen that's generally how it worked Mm -hmm. and so when he came over he was a British national and didn't feel the need to I guess apply for citizenship because he was a citizen it was like a really weird system in terms of what happened I guess I know a number of people who were like children of the Windrush and actual Windrush people they did apply for citizenship like there was a mass application process and some people definitely did it because I know my mum and my grandma were one of those groups that definitely went and applied and got their passports and everything was sorted out. There was a group of people that didn't feel the need to, and that was fair enough. And my dad, I guess, was one of those individuals. And a few years ago, they took, he was, he worked here and he was doing his thing and they took his driving license and said he couldn't get it back because he needed proof that he was a citizen. And his main role at the time involved a lot of driving. That was like part of his job. And they took that away. And that was like in the early 2000s. So this has been going on for quite some time where they were starting to slowly peel away people's rights. And then this year he called me and he was like, oh, I have to deal with this Windrush stuff because um, they're like deporting people. And I was even in Jamaica up until like two years ago. And you'd hear stories on the radio how this person, um, who I guess was either like in foster care or something, came back to Jamaica just to visit and reconnect with their homeland and try to get back to the UK and was told that they couldn't they weren't allowed back in because they're not citizens and England was all they knew so they got deported back to Jamaica with no family ties or anything like that there were so many stories like that every day on the radio and of course Um, over here that voice is silence we don't get to hear those stories because they're not allowed to speak oh it's crazy yeah it's really it was really insidious and I was like wait what do you mean and then my mum would be like this happened in St. Kitts. Some woman was just found, like, not found on the side of the road. She wasn't dead. She was just, like, I guess hitchhiking, looking lost. And someone, I think it was a very friendly place. So people were like, oh, who are you looking for? And she she had one name that she knew on the island who wasn't necessarily family and then ended up staying there and just tried to get back to the UK and just was really struggling. So it is a story that's been going on for a long, long time. Um, my dad actually did just get his citizenship in August. Yeah, it was really, really rough. I remember feeling very angry and crying like every day like how do you do that for people how yeah it still hit me actually it's really sad the injustice is is screaming out you're doing quite a few activities and events to mark black history month could you tell us what you're up to i can i don't know if i'm doing quite a few i could probably be doing more i'm definitely going to be returning to the podcast the wannabe podcast which i was on a three-month hiatus and 
I got given the Little Leaders by Vashti Harrison book and asked to do a, a bit of a campaign around it which is really cool because it's a beautifully, beautifully illustrated book of black women in history. I definitely recommend it for literally everyone. It is so wonderfully illustrated. It's just the perfect gift for kids. Um, Because I actually haven't seen a book around black women in history. I think that's what made me so excited about this. So I was like, I'm going to come back and just actually highlight some really great black women doing phenomenal work, both here in the UK, also over in the US as well. I've got um, Abadesi who runs a company called Huffle Crew, which is all about getting young people into STEM. And she's a young, I actually think she's mixed race. She worked at Product Hunt. She does loads of things in tech and her whole thing is around gender diversity in tech. So I'm kind of sharing her story. She also wrote a book called Dream Big and Hustle Hard, which is just a phenomenal book for any young person that is really confused about what to do they are heading off to uni or heading to school she just does such amazing work and i think it's time like her story gets widely spread i'm also working very hard on getting vashti harrison herself who illustrated and wrote the book to come on Mm -hmm. so we've been speaking back and forth in emails because she's going to be in the uk for the first week of october so she's done just beautiful illustrate like i've never seen anyone kind of just capture black women in illustration so beautifully and so adorably as well so it would be really great to speak to her and her background in illustration because we're like grossly underrepresented in the arts as I think we touched on at the live show as well that yeah. women are just not in design teams and in places um, which is a far less technical thing but she it's still nice to have a black woman that's illustrating and also really popular for it. Yeah those visual uh, representations particularly when you're younger they mean the world to you because if you can see it then you think that oh maybe I can do that as well. Absolutely and I um, I guess I guested the book to my little niece she's actually just turned to and her mum was like, oh, my God, where did you get this book? Like, she just completely geeked out over it. And I just, like, it was, like, the, be- the most beautiful reaction because I've ne- like, I've had that a handful of times in my childhood where you have books of little illustrations, and usually it's about black history, actually, um, where my mum would dig up, like, the most obscure books with black kids in it, but you just don't, you don't realise how impactful that is on your self-esteem as a child to see yourself represented in literature and in books. Yeah, hopefully I can secure Vashti to actually um, come through. We've made like some tentative plans that should actually happen. And then I'm kind of hoping to speak to Andy Thomas. She wrote The Hate You Give, which is a book about black activism, the Black Lives Matter movement and police brutality. And it just turned into a film that is going to be released wow. late in, I think, early early November, late October um, with Amanda Stenberg. So there's quite a few like big plans happening across October for me and the podcast and then across SON I think for the Shout Out Network we're just going to ramp up all of our content we did a mini history series uh, like two years ago called On Archived History and we are hoping to kind of work with them in terms of just doing some social media content around black history cool things that are happening our community manager is actually the host of On Archived History so she is just a wealth of knowledge around that and I think anything we can do digitally this month is going to be really impactful just because we do have quite an active community a really decent follower base and I think even amongst black people we often forget some of the good things that we've done in history especially in black British history so we're going to be focusing a bit on that and providing literature resources um, TV shows documentaries and films for us this whole month is about platforming everyone that's done the work before us and and providing that space to them rather than us kind of like sucking the spotlight saying we do these amazing things which we do but um it's definitely about just showcasing 
what's happened before and and giving it the room to kind of breathe and be digested. Tell me what you're looking forward to most about Black History Month. I'm actually really looking forward to the Hate You Give movie. I've seen it, but I'm really looking forward to watching it again. I seem to be watching movies twice lately. The Hate You Give movie is just so powerful. Um, the book is phenomenal. I definitely recommend people read that. It's about a teenage girl who witnesses her friend, 17-year-old boy, get killed by a police officer, and all he had in his hand was a hairbrush. That, I don't think that's a spoiler for anyone. That's just what happened. Um, and it's like pretty much in the, the blood. And yeah, it basically just sets a course, a chain reaction through the community. And there's a lot of stuff that they deal with in there from like black relationship, some black history. And there's like, I guess, kind of nods towards the Black Panther movement, business, entrepreneurship in black communities, specifically in America and in the American context. Like, I'm really looking forward to this movie just coming out and people seeing it and reacting to it. I'm always a good fan, a big fan of like movies that come out during Black History Month. I'm also really excited about the programming across the Black Cultural Archives. I think they do such a phenomenal job of chronicling Black Brits in Britain and also the joyful side of that. So if you're not looking for the pain and suffering, if you happen to be in London and can get down to Brixton, uh, the Black Cultural Archives should be something that you definitely tap into just to get a general vibe. Like They do things around like the origins of like Black music. And that's just a really nice thing just to kind of document a a group's history through music and radio stations and that's really fun so things like that I, I am really looking forward to the most um, as well as kind of just reading some books that, on history that I haven't dabbled in already Amazing Imriel thank you so much for joining us where can people find you? I am generally on Twitter at Imi Morgan I am I and Morgan like the captain and, <laughs> um, <laughs> and also the podcast is on Twitter and Instagram at Wannabe Podcast, um, and I will be releasing one episode every Wednesday for Black History Month with some really incredible Black women. So do check that out if you're looking to kind of diversify your followers. There's always a really good selection within the podcast guests that you can just definitely check out, and they're always worth following and staying on top of what their movements are as well. We're joined today by Anna Sampson, anthologist. She's brought with her a copy of her new book, She Is Fierce, which is out already. Brave, bold and beautiful poems by women. Yes. You're not a poet yourself. Not since my tormented teenage years. I oh think God, you more... still, do you still have copies of them? Yes, I do. Do you? Have I actually, no, I don't. I but I have read them as an adult because I run a teenage diary writing open mic night called Cringe. Oh, well, that is the perfect word for it. <laughs> and the most embarrassing things I have ever, ever read at it are the poems I wrote as a teenager that I thought was so great at the time I didn't even need to read them. I actually had them memorised still. Do, come so on no. You just mentioned that you memorised a couple of them. Give us a little burst. <sighs> that was the worst possible thing to say at that point. Uh, there there, was, there was one that opened sugar trees in wishing fields and detailed my um, reco- recovery from addiction at wow. a time when I had never so much as uh, puffed on a silk cut. So <laughs> I think it ended, I'm going to get clean again, but first I'm going home or something. I was about 14. <laughs> and that was not how I wanted to open this interview. Where, where did that come from? Had you watched Something. I'd probably watch something gloomy and I used to romantic. Write short stories all the time, and they were always about broken homes, despite the fact that my parents were very much yeah. together. I think it's because I read my Goggle Eyes by Anne Fine <laughs> and became like obsessed with like this romantic idea of being from a broken home. Yeah, 
I think I thought it would be more interesting if I was, you know, recovering from a serious yeah. addiction than just studying for my mocks. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. With the sugar trees, cocaine and the wishing I'm not even sure I'd were... heard of cocaine. I mean, I just... <laughs> I, I don't want to segue by saying, and now on to some real no, poetry. No, proper poems. <laughs> because obviously all poetry is poetry. So why did you decide to put this together? I edited a few previous anthologies and one day I decided that I wanted to buy an anthology of poems by women and there wasn't one, so I fixed it. I, I was looking for something that covered all eras and would take me through from Sappho right up to today. And the more I looked, there were very niche things like Irish women poets or 19th century or women writing about war. And there was nothing that kind of covered everything. Strange, because here I am <laughs> flicking through this and I've already passed Vita Sackville West, Emily Bronte. I mean, these are names that people there are know. There are a few who appear in the anthologies, you know, you get a scattering of Brontes and Elizabeth Barrett Browning and obviously Emily Dickinson. Emily, I found myself on Christina Rossetti, yeah. you know, Sylvia Plath. Obviously there are names that come up. But, I mean, there was a very famous anthology of poetry of the 30s, a Penguin anthology, in which there was one woman. You know, in a decade where Vita Sackville West was writing, you know, Edith Sitwell was writing, you know, all these incredible writers were writing, but they just didn't make it into the canon either because the men were more established or sometimes because their subjects were seen as a bit feminine and not appreciated. Who'd want to read about that then? There's only 50% <laughs> of the population. Exactly. And obviously going further back, women had less access to education. It was considered not quite nice to write and publish your books and sell your books. It was sort of akin to selling yourself. It was considered not to be proper. Women had less access to education. They didn't have the social, sexual, economic freedom to write and to publish. People wrote, but actually published under pseudonyms or they didn't write at all or they wrote and they weren't published. Yeah, it was a really hidden history. So, so what was your starting point? It was a big job. I made a list of the people I knew had to be in there and then I just read and read and read and read and the kitchen table disappeared and my family forgot what it looked like. We had to put up several... I say we, my husband, in a very unfeminist mood. Uh -huh. <laughs> had to put up a lot more bookshelves and I kept buying more books and finding more books online and I just read and read and read and then they sort of fell into categories and then I had to start whittling. It's the hardest book I've ever cut down. I lost another whole book. I mean, if everyone could please buy this because I've got enough for book two. <laughs> there are so many other amazing poems by women and many of which just haven't had the appreciation that they deserve. You say that they sort of fell into categories. Was that quite natural or were you, were you aware to provide a contemporary anthology of a historical poetry that you had to tick certain boxes as well? Initially, my plan was to go through women's poetry from sort of the ancient world and Sappho up to the present day and all the amazing women writing today. But actually, that's quite difficult to do because where do you stop between Victorian and modernist, etc.? And also, because, of course, there was such a small number of women writing in the early stages, there's very, very, very short chapters. <laughs> and then suddenly Victorian times hit us and we've got loads and loads of women writers and a big explosion so it didn't make any sense to do that uh, so dividing them into themes so there's family and roots and motherhood there were a lot of poems I found about resistance and protest and defense of the downtrodden which is something that's obviously always occupied women so a lot of these women were very active in the civil rights movement in the fight for women's suffrage and fighting for equality really on every level as well as 
fighting for gender equality. There's a lot of 18th century women being very caustic about their husbands and everyone's husbands. So what was your favourite find? So hard. I was flicking through on the way here thinking they're going to ask me what my favourite poem is and I just can't. I just can't. I think it depends on my mood because they're all so different. One poet that I've never heard of before that I thought was amazing was a woman called Paulie Murray who was uh, California's first black attorney general who writes these incredible poems and was a civil rights activist and in complete defiance of barriers that they placed in front of her due to her race, due to her gender, overcame them all to have this incredible career. And there's a poem in there called Ruth, which is one of my favourites. There's a modernist who I'd never really heard of called Lola Ridge, who lived in this shabby apartment in New York and was an activist and before it was trendy. And she wrote some amazing poems that I think are starting to get a bit of attention now. But I got to research the biogs of the women as well. So I got to research their lives, which are in the back of the book. Only a little paragraph on each of them, but that in, in some ways, I enjoyed that as much as reading the poems themselves because there are these incredible women fleeing sort of persecution and putting up with awful abuse from their husbands and, and terrible illness and having eight children and still finding time to <laughs> write. So some really inspiring stories. See, I didn't realise Elizabeth Siddle wrote poetry. Nobody does. Just <laughs> yes, that's the thing. And women feature very heavily in poetry, but almost always because men are, you know, eyeing them up and writing about them. We don't see inside their heads very often. And yes, she was the muse and she wrote and she probably might have been more successful had she been published. There was plans to publish her in a volume with Christina Rossetti, obviously her sister-in-law, which didn't come off. But some of her poems are, are lovely and they were sort of dismissed as women's everything was as sort of terribly naive and sweet and charming but not worthy of the attention that the men received. Women's poetry doesn't all sound like women's comedy. Uh. <laughs> I mean, unless it also Stevie Smith. Now, I, I have to say, I mean, I would consider myself to be moderately interested in poetry. Not, I mean, I don't read a huge amount of it, but I do read some. Um, Stevie Smith I only discovered when Judy Ballou wrote a piece for about her issue, yeah. for Standard Issue and when I read Not Waving But, yeah, but Drowning, but drowning I thought, which is in yeah. it, oh is that in here? it is yeah. I thought where have you been all my life with this poem I literally loads of others of hers of as well that's the one famous one I think that, that she is known for but I did also discover lots of hers that I didn't know that are in there yeah she was fascinating women as well there's also a lot of great what, what I suppose I could say, current, yeah. Oh, yes. Uh, Kate Tempest, friend yeah. of the show, Holly McNish. Yes. They are actually continuing, a, a particularly Holly, a sort of political stance that has been carried on by women. Yeah, nowadays, definitely. But. And I, I think, I can't give you a poet's eye view, not being a poet since my teenage years, but I would say the poetry scene for women seems very healthy now. You know, Holly goes viral and Kate Tempest sells out stadiums yeah. and, you know, best they're topping the bestseller lists and winning major prizes. We've got a female laureate. I, you know, I think, thank goodness, the the scene now is very fascinating and vibrant. But... Yeah, I think there's definitely a thread that goes back of protest and resistance and just defence of people who can't... I think women couldn't vote and they couldn't stand up in Parliament and make speeches. So, you know, there are an awful lot of women writing to support causes and writing sort of very affectingly about uh, the position of the working classes and slavery and all of these evils as, as a way to bring attention to them. Also, what I would say that Holly does very well, and there's also I see there's some Wendy Cope in there as well, is uh, is humour in in poetry yes. for women. 
that leads quite neatly onto what I wanted to ask Hannah. There's humour in poetry, and I think using the warmth and wit and wryness and sort of acrid humour that women have in poetry is interesting in respect to language. Did you find that there were themes of language that run through history? There's certain words that came up time and time again. or Obviously, I think motherhood comes up, but also I do think there is a a sort of... There's often a puncturing of the overblown... The male poets, some of them, especially sort of classical... And we go Wordy back to motherfuckers. Of, yeah, there is a bit of that. I think there is. And, and there are a lot of women deflating ideas in here that have been quite pompous there's there's an earthiness to a lot of them a couple of months ago um i found myself going down a little youtube wormhole and i became completely re-obsessed because i was when i was younger with pam s and how she's in a amazingly funny she was but b how completely ahead of her time she has a poem called i believe it's called don't ask me ask my husband which basically like explains mansplaining about 40 <laughs> yeah. years before the term mansplaining was coined. In in the book is a poem by someone called Winifred Holtby, who's best known for South Riding, which is her big novel. But she was a political journalist and campaigner and also a poet. And she coined, she sort of talked about, there seems to be this innate desire of all men to explain all topics to all women <laughs> 70 years before. <laughs> and my biographer mentions the fact that 70 years before she'd put a finger on mansplaining. Brilliant. Did you find characters that you fell in love with? Because you mentioned the paragraphs at the back, you really enjoyed writing them. Were there women that you just thought, oh, I wish I could go for a, a beer Oh, yeah. A glass of port in Victorian times. And a nice Dorothy, shot of opium with... Uh, Dorothy Parker's <laughs> yeah. in there. So Dorothy Lord Parker's yeah. in, then yeah. A martini with Dorothy Parker. And then you yeah. could write about your addiction. <laughs> there would be a fantastic dinner party, I think, to be had with a lot of these women who would just tirelessly producing all of this work while fighting all these causes and all these fronts and presumably running their households and raising the 19 children they were having and some some incredible stories. I think Margaret Cavendish, who's 17th century, she's very interesting. What did she, she do? Uh, she, she was so eccentric. That, well, she had a nickname Mad Madge, but actually that was coined rather later. But uh, all the children would come out to watch her come through in her carriage. She was sort of known to be quite extraordinary. Virginia Woolf was quite interested in her and wrote about it was as if a beautiful garden full of um, full of roses and then there was just an enormous great big whacking cabbage flower in the middle of it, I think she called her, and that, that was her brain, which was so interesting and different. And Yeah, there were some fascinating women. So do you have anything planned for National Poetry Day? Are you appearing anywhere? I am. Yes, I'm going to be at the Henley Literary Festival with uh, two of the poems in the po- poets in the book. So Deborah Alma, who tours the country in a vintage ambulance prescribing poetry for what ails you. She's the emergency poet. I love her already. Which is amazing. And one of her poems, which I adore, is in the book. And also Nikita Gill, who has an enormous online following and is one of the people who I think is getting more and more young readers into poetry. And so I think that's going to be absolutely fascinating. If you're someone like me who didn't know a lot about poetry, where where's like a good place to start? What's your, what's your gateway poet? Well, I'd always say an anthology. Mm-hmm. I'd say that because I'm an anthologist. Sure. But it is a buffet. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's always the way I think to get started. Um, Emily Dickinson's poems are very, very short. <laughs> so you could <laughs> you could hoover up, you know, oh, seven or eight of them in a tea break, I would say. So that might be a good place to start. It sort of depends what you like, whether mm. you 
sort of like quite simple stripped down language or I did actually if, I think I only read about four books last year um, they're always laughing at me because I'm like yeah just <laughs> look at Facebook on my well, phone actually, at night but I'm a big believer in poetry instead of books because I think a lot of the benefits of reading you can get from poetry in a concentrated hit exercise your emotions one of the four books or whatever it was I read last year was actually a book of poetry Claudia Rankine, Citizen. Oh, yes. Yeah. 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 Well, there you go. You're High in brow. there. Yeah. <laughs> Jen's just high tender self for yeah. reading. <laughs> that's a level poetry, guys. <laughs> I think the other thing that's interesting about poetry rather than reading fiction is because, you know, in the traditional, what does it actually mean? You know, sit down and, and that's what you did at school. Which ruins it for a Which, lot of people, exactly. including me, who didn't read a poem for 10 years after university. But it also means that you can make it mean almost anything, anything. when you read it. And I do that's... think different stages in your life, different poems. I've got young children, so th- there were a lot of the poems about motherhood that were sort of moving me to tears, partly because I was just tired. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, there are different stages in your life where different poems mean different things to you and speak to you. And, yeah, I do think it's ruined for a lot of people at school when you sit down and you take it apart word by word yeah. and you feel like you have to understand it all. And actually you know they're they're supposed to be like songs and wash over you you don't listen to a pop song and you know worry about knowing what every lyric means mm. or how would we enjoy toto's africa i mean <laughs> <laughs> someone once said there is no best song ever everything's just subjective guys and someone wrote that's a lie it's toto's africa <laughs> <laughs> and i kind of agree with that <laughs> there's also something to be said for the fact that poetry is not particularly best consumed or certainly for some people best consumed by reading it yourself. Poetry comes alive by seeing somebody else read it. Oh, yes, absolutely, can do. And I also think, if you can, and maybe if you're not on a train, uh, reading it out loud to yourself is, you know, the pleasure of the language and they're designed to be beautiful things. I Um, think the spoken word scene as well is very healthy at the moment. Poetry slams are kind of big business. I think people do love people like Holly McNeish and Kate. Kate Tempest I saw at Primavera last year and I was very, very cynical about it and I have to say it was fucking amazing, like really, really incredible to watch. Poetry is a bit like the word feminist in that it puts (laughs) a lot of people off without them actually knowing what it means. Yeah, that's very fair. Yeah. Sort it out, Anna. <laughs> I do think a lot of people say to me, oh, I don't know anything about poetry, oh, I don't like poetry. I say, oh, so you never heard The Owl and the Pussycat, you know. There, there are, we've got an awful lot of poetry that we absorb without noticing, I think. Oh, there are poems that I can used to know off by heart when I was a child that I could probably do three or four, like, verses, sections, still, now. Yeah, Matilda being one of them, and Alfred and the Lion oh, being another one. Yes, and Jim who ran away from the nurse and he got eaten. The, the cautionary tales. Yeah, yeah, terrifying. Yeah. They're really gruesome Matilda and terrifying. Matilda told such dreadful lies it made one gasp and stretch one's eyes. Oh, like the Stroll Peter. She burned to death, didn't she? she? Did? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like yeah. the Edward Gorey Stroll Peter kind of. Yes, book. Yeah. exactly. Um, but you see, we start children off with poetry. We absorb poetry from you know the Gruffalo is a poem functionally you yeah. know we, we don't get scared of it till later on the first things that we so learn do you mean the Gruffalo you know. or poetry 
um, <laughs> you know, my my, my two year old knows if I skip a verse. God damn it! In the Gruffalo to get to bedtime <laughs> quicker. So you know, it's it's something that only becomes frightening with associations later. I don't feel that it needs to. Yeah, it's got this. I mean, there's this word attached to poetry a lot, which is you know pretentious, and I suppose that's because. A lot of people spend a lot of time in their bedroom when they're 15 writing pretentious, yeah. tortured poetry. I mean, I wouldn't know anyone who would. <laughs> <laughs> I just like to think about the, the sugar trees in the wishing fields. <laughs> Look, I remembered your poem immediately. <laughs> well, very catchy, you see. Before you leave us, Anna, can we ask you to give us a reading from, from your book? It would be my pleasure, she says nervously. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'll read The New Colossus by Emma Lazarus, which appears on the plinth of the Statue of Liberty. The New Colossus, not like the brazen giant of Greek fame, with conquering limbs astride from land to land, here at our sea-washed sunset gates shall stand a mighty woman with a torch, whose flame is the imprisoned lightning, and her name Mother of Exiles. From her beacon hand glows worldwide welcome, her mild eyes command the air-bridged harbour that twin cities frame. Keep ancient lands your storied pomp, cries she with silent lips. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuge of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless tempests tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. If you're listening, Trump, I was going to say... It was a better time. Yeah. Read this to him. <laughs> Thank you so much for that. Where can people get hold of She Is Fierce? All good bookshops? All good bookshops. Amazon? Uh, yes. Excellent. Everywhere. Thank you so much for your time, Anna. Thank you so much for having me. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Hello. I'm joined by Joy Wilkinson, a playwright, screenwriter and author of the new play, The Sweet Science of Bruising, which is showing at the Southwark Playhouse from the 3rd to the 27th of October. Hello, Joy. Hi. As I've already said, the play is called The Sweet Science of Bruising. And this is Jenny off the blocks, the, the sporting element of the podcast. So that's a bit of a clue as to what this play is about. But Joy, can you tell us a bit more? The play is about Victorian ladies boxing. And it's set in 1869 in Victorian London mainly. Uh, but it's about four Victorian women from all different walks of life. There's Violet Hunter, who's a very politicised young woman who wants to become the first female doctor in the UK. There's Matilda Blackwell, who's Irish street-smart entrepreneur who does everything from typesetting at the Times newspaper to a little like prostitution at the matinees. There's Anna Lamb, who's very much the, the archetypal Victorian domestic goddess, albeit with some very dark undercurrents going on in her household. And finally, there's Polly Stokes, who's a kind of kick-ass northern lass who fights her way from the pit brow into exhibition matches with her brother, who's a boxer. So it's about all these four women discovering boxing and about how it changes their lives, whether it liberates them, connects them, brings them into conflict and competition, uh, and really about violence in many ways. Um, as well as sport and the, the different ways that that can play out and positive and negative. Why were you drawn to this subject in particular? I'm absolutely fascinated by 
strong women and what it means to be strong. And I kind of don't set out to find those subjects, but I just find that I'm obsessed with them. And, and I think I can kind of trace it back to 1992 when I saw Terminator 2 um, and just that image of Linda Hamilton. Oh, my God. And, and it just blew my mind. And then, of course, you see Ellen Ripley and Thelma and Louise. And, and, and they were very complex women who was strong in different ways uh, and then that got turned into something that was a bit more uh, of a male fantasy with kind of more cut out cardboardy women who just happened to wear vests and have muscles but were actually kind of sex objects in action films and so I kind of find myself drawn to stories where I can reclaim that and tell it from a female perspective with women who have flaws and weaknesses that make them even stronger than than just kicking ass so I wasn't looking for this story but I was doing a, another play about fairgrounds and I came across this book by this wonderful professor Vanessa Toolman who's a professor of fairgrounds which is a marvelous job and she'd written a book about boxing on fairgrounds the boxing booths and there was just this one chapter in it about lady boxers and I just stopped and saw the, these images of these women from kind of from the 17th century, from the 19th century, very, very different women, very different images of femininity, but with boxing gloves on or bare-knuckled even, kind of clawing at each other. And there's just so many complicated meanings in that image and a hidden world, because there's only these snippets that we know about them. So it's this gift for a dramatist where you can find out a, a bit about those actual women, but then find out a lot about women in that time, and a lot about boxing in that time, and then, and then you've got this huge panorama that becomes a kind of crucible of talking about women and violence and strength. I'm, I'm sort of into boxing a little bit. I take boxing lessons. Do you spar? I'm about to. For the first time, I'm about to... I'm, I'm preparing with my trainer to uh, punch another woman in the face <laughs> and, and quite possibly be punched back. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm taller, apparently, so, you know, got an advantage. Absolutely. So I think people have this perception that boxing is relatively new for women. So the first time it was in the Olympics was 2012. The first pro license was Jane Couch in 1998, which was described incidentally by the British Medical Association as a demented extension of equal opportunities. But there's quite a long history of combat sports, so like suffragettes who were pioneers of jiu-jitsu, things like that. How easy was it to find out about these Victorian female boxers when you were researching? It wasn't easy at all uh, and I kind of started playing with this idea a long time ago, over 10 years ago, uh, and there's more about it now since it's been in the Olympics and, and there's more coverage of it and since people like Nicola Adams are out there. But even in kind of 2006, 2007, it was, as you say, sneered at and it's really really recently that it's become more acceptable and from Vanessa Toolman's research I found out the the lady known as the first female boxer generally was called Elizabeth Wilkinson so obviously I was narcissistically interested <laughs> because I could be related to her uh, so she was around around 1720 and she was a bare knuckle fighter and and actually kind of very respected in her circles she fought for a good few years in the 1720s 
1920s and got a lot of renown and was well referred to in the history books until the Victorian era, the, there was a shift in how she was written about, which made much more of a deal of the guy who ran the fights and really downplayed her role because it didn't fit in with gender roles at that time. And that's what you see happening, that in the 18th century and in the Regency, there is a more kind of laissez-faire attitude to particularly working-class women fighting. And then it kind of goes underground. And, and you see it carrying on in America, and there's obviously a through line because they reappear in the later uh, kind of 1880, you get Polly Burns in Lancashire on, on the fairgrounds. But really, it gets hidden from view because these aren't people who are in control of the narrative anymore. And it really is the height of the time when women are in corsets and crinolines and caged up. And that's why I wanted to set this play bang in the middle of that time when those women's stories weren't told because we damn well know that they were around because they were around for over 100 years before and over 100 years afterwards. But just as we're only just getting this explosion of women's stories now, whereas in the early 2000s they weren't around, I think things just get hidden from view. And then if people grow up in that time, they can believe that that's how things are and that women aren't capable of men's sport. But yeah, I mean, Elizabeth Wilkinson was talked about as, as triumphing in, I think it's battles of skill and there's battles of manhood which is fist fighting, but there was no resistance to her doing that. It's quite interesting that you've said that because there are other sports like football, for example, where actually women's football is pretty mainstream for a while. They, they were during the First World War, I think. They were attracting audiences of in the tens of thousands in some cases. Then they were kind of sent backwards, basically, by the powers that be, who were a bit like, uh, you're kind of encroaching on our territory now, would you sod off? And then obviously that put them back. They're effectively banned for 50 years from playing football. Did you find it was sort of fairly similar with boxing? Yeah, because if there's that saying, isn't there? If you can't see it, you can't be it. And and if you were growing up after the time when those women footballers were around, you were told it was a man's sport and therefore you receive that and absorb that. And it's only the absolute... The, the ones who, who can't help themselves but do it. And then even then they're subversive and they have to make sacrifices and it, it can be just too hard to fight that fight. And I think with boxing, very much so because it, it was the absolute opposite of the female ideal, which itself was just full of hypocrisy during that Victorian era. I mean, you've got uh, in 1869, the year I've set the play, there was this case of this woman who was beaten by her husband over and over and she, she saved up money and worked hard and, and got away and, and he came after her and, and beat her up again and she ended up killing him and, and went to prison for it. And actually, there was so much violence in women's lives and yet they were supposed to be also submissive and weak and unable to cope with things like sports. So to, to a woman on the ground, it, it wouldn't make any sense. But, but if you don't have those things to aspire to, you, you couldn't follow anybody's lead. So no, I mean, I think... So much of it is about other societal agendas going on, like with the football example. I remember a friend was, wanted to write about that, and there was a very specific situation where somebody just said, no, we're, we're banning it. Um, and, and it's as blatant as that. It's, it's not even a groundswell. It's, it's individuals making decisions that will affect everybody's lives. I think with the football 
the team that I'm thinking of, I think they were playing to audiences of like 40,000 people, which is, you know, big by not Premier League clubs, but by, all right, championship clubs. That's, you know. We're in a different era of championships now. But yeah, that is a huge, huge success and a lot of skill. And and that's the thing, just to see these women exhibiting these skills is so empowering of itself. There's a thing that the actresses in the play have said, it's so unusual to play female roles who are really good at something and are proud of being really good at something. And all of them want to be the best and say that they're the best and believe that they're the best and I'm really interested in in what that does to a character and I think we need to tell ourselves that a lot more in order to believe it and to get those roles it doesn't mean they can't be complex characters with inhibitions and things but I think the more we kind of tell ourselves that that women are their own worst enemies who don't believe that they can do things the more again that's a self-fulfilling prophecy. I think that's really interesting that they've uh, I'm not used to playing a woman who's really good at what she does. And and, and what does that tell you about the roles that exist for women? Oh, massively, massively. I mean, I've always tried to write really powerful, mould-breaking female characters. And it is such an eye-opener for things like casting when you're asking men to not be the lead and to play supporting roles. And I still always give them a journey and give them their moment and and try to be very even-handed about it. But you just know that that hasn't been the case for women for decades, that that women have just turned up and done those supportive roles where they stand next to a male detective kind of nodding along and and admiring his genius. Uh, and, And my God, you can go all the way to things like True Detective where women are playing dead bodies with sort of men doing master classes in acting around them and and I just think again that that sets a tone and the power structures reinforce it and then you just take the jobs that are there and believe me you are not the first person who's spoken to who said something along those lines what can people who come to see the play expect it's kind of epic and intimate at the same time i am a person with a really kind of catholic taste and i like things to be between the gutter and the stars you know i like things to be big and have a lot happening and be ambitious uh, but also character driven so that you get those journeys as well so as i say it's got four leads in it it's got boxing in it uh, it's got fencing in it uh, it cracks along it's got a guy called the professor who's a kind of mc who they also had the kind of i mean there's the equivalent of boxing matches now but but absolutely fascinating uh, showman character it is a big show in a lot of ways and there's 10 actors in it which is really big for you know Southwark Playhouse or but I like to be ambitious and and again I think that's something that women should do and so it's it's emotional it's kind of romantic in its way but also shocking and thrilling and very real in ways as well. This is a big big week for you then because I also (laughs) noticed that you have been writing on the new Doctor Who series. Can you tell us anything about that at all? I can't tell you anything that isn't already known yeah. uh, because it's it's really all very secret. Yeah. But I can tell you it's been brilliant to work on at the same time as this because obviously that's a mould-breaking role as well. We're very much writing it just as a brilliant character and it should inspire boys and girls and mums and dads and everybody watching it. But it's been 
like the play. It's it's another kind of story form where you you do everything and it's it's funny and surprising and thrilling and dark and scary so it really kind of lends itself to the way I write so I'm just amazed to have got the chance to do it really because I think you know it's a it's a whole new era and really exciting to be part of and Jodie is absolutely luminous and the gang that she's with are just people that you want to hang out with and I've got some cracking guest stars who are like way beyond my wildest dreams and um, I'm really excited about it. (laughs) So finally, on Saturday this week, Nicola Adams is set to face Isabel Milan for the interim WBO World Super Flyweight title in Leicester. And that was well-timed, wasn't it? Um, have you terribly timed because it's going to split my boxing audience. <laughs> but she's amazing. I mean, she's, she's a really fascinating character. I mean, all the female boxers I've looked at are, but just where she comes from and how she's got that far and the sheer, sheer determination. It's, it's not just that it's in her and that the moment she kind of smelt the boxing gym she was in there but the determination to keep going and be turned down by trainers and go back to them and back to them and to get into the olympics and and as you say it wasn't in the olympics way back in i think it was 1902 1904 whichever year the olympics was there was a display of women's boxing as a kind of novelty and that it took over a century from then to actually be in there as a proper sport is just boggling but brilliant and brilliant that she did it these events need to get more space and more coverage and more profile really because i'm sure she can inspire a whole generation of other young women she inspired me that's why i started boxing um yeah pretty much well i mean i it's a long story but um it's a bit longer than nicola adams but yeah she's a big part of it yeah Joy, thank you so much for joining us. I've already told you where you can see the play. You can see it at the Southwark Playhouse from today, the 3rd of October, to the 27th of October. And where can we find you, Joy, to follow you? I'm on Twitter at at joyofse19. And I've got a website, which is www.joywilkinson.net. I think, but just search for Joy Wilkinson I'll pop up all over the place. I'll be hanging around at the Southwark Playhouse if you want to pop down. That's all from us this week. Thanks very much for listening. You know, as ever, please feel free to share the love. If you like what we do, tell a mate. Tell all your mates. Tell people you've never even met before. Go up to strangers in the street and if they are willing to talk to you, then, you know, tell them about us. We very much appreciate it. Bob onto iTunes and subscribe if you're not already. And feel free to rate and review us while you're there. We really do love those five stars. Thanks very much. As I mentioned just before, the snippet of the chat I had with Imriel in this week's podzine, I am back with a longer chops on Sunday where I chat more to Imriel Morgan about all sorts of stuff relating to Black History Month. We've also got a Spotify playlist taking in the wonders of all things poetry, so listen out for that too. Next week, Dottie Winters is talking adoption. Author Jean Hannah Edelstein is talking about Lynch Syndrome and me and Hannah went for a beer with the Drunk Women Solving Crime, aka Taylor Glenn and Hannah George. It's also Katie Wilkins, but she had stuff to do and couldn't be there, so we poured one out for our absent homies. If you fancy coming and seeing us live, then we would very much like to see your faces in front of our faces, watching our mouths move and words come out. 
The next gig is at Leicester Square Theatre on October the 28th, where we are chatting to the brilliant June Sarpong, the excellent Lisa Riley, and the awesome Stacey Solomon. It'll be fun. They're always superb fun. And there's always something that happens that does not translate well to a podcast. So please get a ticket. You can find information and tickets for all our shows at sarahmillican.co.uk forward slash standard hyphen issue. Please give us a follow on Twitter if you're not doing so already at Standard Issue UK or you could follow us individually. I'm at Mixter Noonan, Hannah is at That Dunleavy and Jen is at Jen. If you found some change in your pocket and you're not sure what to do with it, please consider checking out our Patreon page, which is patreon.com forward slash standard issue and maybe chucking us a little bit of bunts to help keep us going and help make more content that champions women in all of our messy glory. All right, enough of my wimbling. Thanks again for listening and until the next time, stay frosty. Standard Issue for all women.